Amen. Sundays are back. <clears throat> so I think, some of you are excited about that. So I think, actually I know, that probably most, if not all, of what I struggle with in my faith, and I'll say it even more like um, how my faith lives out each day, that most of that trouble, most of the struggles, most of the missteps and kind of the, the fumbles of my faith come not from circumstances and not from people interfering with my faith and a lot of the things that I might be tempted to blame, but rather what I think God wants from me. What his expectations are from me. Um, maybe it's that I feel like the relationship I have with God is so disproportionately one-sided that I never feel like I'm going to get caught up or that I'm doing enough or that it's sufficient. He's eternal. He's infinite and I'm finite. He's perfectly righteous and I'm chronically sinful. He's unbelievably, immeasurably benevolent and generous. And I am selfish, self-focused and greedy. And if it means me getting a blessing over a stranger getting a blessing, I'll take the blessing every time. And God is forgiving and loving and compassionate and I'm judgmental and critical. And so it feels like I have nothing to give to this relationship. At least in our marriages, we feel like there's a level of equality. There's a give and take. We each bring something to the relationship. And when you don't, those relationships tend to fall apart. And I ask myself, what is it that I can give back to God? What is it that I'm supposed to offer up to God for everything he's given to me? I've given nothing really in comparison to the concept and idea that he gave his only son to die for me with the anticipation that I only might follow him and love him back. Not that I would for sure, but that I might. So what can I give back to him? And David actually asked this as king in Psalms. Um, he said, what can I give back to God for the blessings that he's poured out on me. I love this <clears throat> paraphrased translation. What can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out to me? I'll lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to God. I'll pray in the name of God. I'll complete what I promised God I'll do, and I'll do it together with his people. And when they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. Oh God, here I am, your servant, your faithful servant. Twice he says it right there. Set me free for your service. I'm ready to give the thanksgiving sacrifice and pray in the name of God. 
And then he says, I'll complete what I promised God I'll do. I'll do it in the company with his people, in the place of worship, in God's house, in Jerusalem, God's city. Hallelujah. I love what David does here. He asks the question, what can I give back to God for everything he's poured out on me? David, knowing exactly what I know about my own life, that God is so much better. God is so much more generous. God is so much more giving and merciful. It is a completely disproportionate relationship. And David asks the question, what? What can I do about that? But David asked the question, not as this rhetorical, philosophical, what could I give to God? He doesn't ask it waiting for someone else to answer it. He doesn't ask it for any other reason but that he already has the answer. I'm going to ask the question out loud so that you know where the answer comes from. And then you know what David's answer is? I'm going to give back to God what's already his. God, or David says, I'm going to worship him for being him. For his salvation, I'm going to serve because what other option do I have but to serve the creation that he served? And he says, I'm going to do it with his people in his house. I'm going to gather in the temple on the Sabbath. I'm going to go to the tabernacle. I'm going to go to the presence of God in the presence of God's people. And I'm going to serve them and I'm going to worship and I'm going to thank God and I'm going to cry out to him. And I'm going to do everything that I can to simply give God back what's already his. It's so genius of David to go, I don't have anything good to give in myself, so I'll give you what you created for me. What a genius gift is the perfect one. God pours out all this blessing and David goes, I offer that all back up to you because I recognize who you are. And it's the best that I can give is what you've given to me, which is the best. Sundays are a gift that God's given to us. I want to have you do something. And, and I want you all to do it. Will you, can I get an agreement that everyone will do what I ask you to do? I know, I, I hope after 15 years I've established a modicum of trust with you. You're not going to have to kiss anyone near you or... I want everyone to stand up. Yeah, I hear the groaning already. Just flip and cooperate, would you? Now, I want you to move seats. It doesn't matter where. It can be one seat. You can flip-flop with somebody. You can move one seat over. Just don't sit back down where you started. Wow, some of you guys, I love it, are moving completely into different seats. Now, some of you really didn't like doing that. And here's why. Because for a moment, you believed that I asked you to give up something of yours. 
And in reality, it never belonged to you to begin with. That wasn't your seat, right? You didn't buy it, first of all. Second of all, we don't have a reservation system here like Cinemark Theaters where you reserve your nice electric lounger, right? You, for the last 30 minutes, have been borrowing that seat, using it at invitation, mind you. But to give up what you perceived was yours makes us uncomfortable. David said, nothing I have that's good in my life is from me to begin with. I don't own any of it. It's all from you. So I don't want to hold on to it and begrudgingly give it up. And that's what Sundays have become. That when we gather, this sometimes feels like we've given up something for God. Like we've made a sacrifice to be in his presence, to worship with him, to gather with his people. But we haven't at all. Wasn't our day to begin with. The word says that God worked for six days and on the seventh, he created the entire seventh day for a singular purpose. And he set it aside and he made it sacred and he made it holy and he set it apart and he made it special and he rested. It's his day. It's not ours to begrudgingly give up some time to him. David said, I'm giving you the best of me. I'm giving you the best of my time. I'm giving you the best of everything I have. I'm giving back to you what already belongs to you. And when I give my Sunday to God first, you can write this into your notes, it allows me to reflect on the world that I'm creating. <clears throat> to reflect on the world that I'm creating. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Read this last week as well. So the earth, the sky, and everything in them were finished. God finished the work he was doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from his work. God blessed the seventh day and he made it a holy day. He made it special because on that day, he rested from the work that he did while creating the world. So God made the day special, not because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. He didn't continue working, and that's why it was special. It didn't look like any of the other days, because on all the other days, he created. And on the seventh day, he did nothing. Except observe what he had created. Reflect on his creation. Rest in his creation. And part of God's creation, mind you, was the crown jewel of what he created, above all other things, the beauty of his creation was you and I, mankind. And in creating us, here's why we're the most beautiful thing of his creation. He created us to reflect him. He made us an actual reflection, his, a living, breathing reflection of his character, of his nature, of his creative power. That's pretty incredible. It really is amazing to look down on creation and see yourself. 
and him knowing the future, see himself manifested in so many different versions, so many different amazing facets, so many different colors and shades and, 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 and beautiful expressions of himself. Here's what it says. Um, I actually don't know if I put the scripture reference on here, but throw it up. Somebody found it for me. All right, there you go. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image. And remember, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In our image, make them reflecting our nature. So we have God's image. We have God's nature so that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, in the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, and take charge. Be responsible. Here, that's come up again. For the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. In creating us, in his nature, in his reflection, in his character, he also created us with a mandate of responsibility, of stewardship over what he's created. And in doing so, enabled us to be creators ourselves. Because I want you to hear this. The world that Adam and Eve lived in, the world that all of us live in, is the product of our own creation. We know that because God created his creation in perfection, and it only took Adam and Eve a very short time to screw up perfection. So then they had to live in the world that they created through their choice. Right? So that means that you and I, in our godlike nature, are creators of worlds. The world you live in is the world that you've created. Now, I know it feels like you live in a much bigger world than that. Because if you and I spend our time lamenting over the world everyone else created, we forget that we're responsible for the world that we live in. And so all we do with our creative power is create blame and create guilt and create shame and create anger and create bitterness and create fear and create hopelessness. And that's the world we live in because we let everyone else create our world for us. Right? Well, some of you believe what I'm saying. All right. So Proverbs 21 and 23 says, says this. Those who are careful about what they say keep themselves out of trouble. You determine the quality of your world. You can create trouble with it, or you can create paradise with it. All the married people said, amen. <laughs> All the teenagers who smarted off to your parents at one point said, amen, right? Because with our ability to speak, the Bible says we can produce life and we can produce death. We are creators, it also says this in Proverbs 28, 19, he who cultivates his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless people and frivolous pursuits will have plenty of poverty. 
In other words, what you do in your actions will produce good things and blessings and provision and wealth in your life, or you're going to create poverty in your life through your actions or lack of actions. So what you say and what you do, and we know that what you think are all part of our creative process. And that means that every week, six days a week, you're creating something. You're creating your world, the one you live in. You're creating not only your world, but just like God's world, you're creating a world that your spouse has to live in. You're creating a world that your kids are inheriting. You're creating a world in which people are observing and judging your world and determining whether your world looks better than their world. And I got to tell you, if I was an unbeliever looking at the face of Christianity today, I would run from it. Because we, as the church, somewhere along the way have allowed people to hijack, commandeer, and weaponize Christianity for political purposes. And it is a shame on the body of Christ. Four of you agree, amen. <clears throat> it's okay if you don't agree, won't be the first time you're wrong, won't be the last time. But I can tell you this, we're all living in the worlds that we create. And you also know this to be true. You are living in the world that others create as well. So the question is, are you taking a day like today in the presence of God, pausing and resting with him and asking him to help you reflect on the world that you've created? through your thoughts and through your words and through your actions, have you asked God, is this the world you created me to create? And if not, I'm asking you to help me be a better creator. To help me see the responsibility and the stewardship that you've given me over my world and help me use my creative power to speak life out of what I think, and to do living things, life-giving things with what I choose to do with my time. Secondly is this, when I give my Sundays to God first, it allows me to realign with his rhythms of grace. Realign with his rhythms of grace. So if you think of your 52 weeks, that's how many you get in the course of a year, and then you tend to think of the things that happen within that week, right? So your weeks are made up of work and school and soccer practice and dinners and all of the things that we do during our week. And then the next question you sort of have to uh, uh, ask is, what do I feel like uh, disrupts those? What do I feel like is interfering with those? Because we sort of believe a week has a rhythm. And that's because we set the rhythm of that week through work. And so if work is our priority, and we believe, begrudgingly maybe, and, and involuntarily maybe believe that work is a necessary evil, and so therefore that sets the rhythm. I have to be at work. The kids have to be at school. Then everything else that's not that thing can potentially be a disruptor of that thing. And it feels out of rhythm with it. I can't, I can't do that. I've got to work. I'm so tired from work. I don't want to go out with the family after. I, I'm, 
So when work becomes the rhythm setter, then everything else is a disruptor of the rhythm of work. And if family, which is a good thing, is the rhythm setter, then even other good things can be disruptive. Uh, week one, I started with, I mean, I'll be at church as long as there's not, you know, I don't, I'm not scheduled to work. And as long as uh, there's not a good game on, I mean, football season starting, the uncomfortable laughs start, right? And I mean, there's family stuff that happens. And you, you know, I mean, I can't help it that they schedule it at 1030. I got to be over and help set up and. All right, so if family is the priority in the rhythm setter, then everything else feels disruptive. But it's worth asking, if we don't prioritize the first things first, and we put something in the rhythm setting position that doesn't belong in the rhythm setting position, then is it safe to assume that the reason that we're tired and frustrated and feel like we're swimming against the current and kind of don't ever feel like things are fully lined up, like the gears are still just off a little bit, that there's a grind to our life, that there isn't a peace in the rhythm of our life. Is it possible then that we are letting the wrong thing set the rhythm for our life? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Put my yoke upon your shoulders. It might appear heavy at first, but it's perfectly fitted to your curves. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. When you are yoked to me, your weary souls will find rest, which means unforced rhythms of grace. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was talking to a group of people who had believed that the yoke symbolized the law, the law under which they had to live their lives. And it was oppressively heavy. It was burdensomely guilt-filled. And Jesus said, I know all yokes look the same, but they're not, I promise you. You weren't created for the law. You weren't created to wear the law. That's why it's so heavy on you. That's why you can't ever get in sync with it. The law is always going to hold you down and hold you back. It is not going to set the right rhythms for your life. Nor is work. And as amazing as family is, neither will family. And neither will all the good things that we somehow have rationalized belong in the rhythm setting position in our life. But Jesus said, if you will allow me to lay my yoke, I'm going to carry all the weight. I'm going to help you. All you'll have to do is just kind of walk in that rhythm, live in that rhythm. You see, we have to drag the law with us. We have to drag the burden of our lives without Christ, without Christ leading. We have to pull that along. And the longer we live, the more crap that gets piled on for those under the age of 18. I apologize for my profane language. I sometimes have parents saying, don't use the word crap. Our kids are in service. Um, 
We have a great children's program, by the way. Anyway, uh, we pick up all of that and we drag it. But when we are yoked to Christ, he says it's light and it's easy because I carry it all. You just have to walk in it. Sundays are this perfectly planned, perfectly positioned moment in which we get to And we get to detach ourselves from all the things we picked up along the way that we yoked ourselves to. We just go, I don't know how I picked that up. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking when I started dragging that along. I don't know why I thought that was so important. And we slip that yoke off and we bring ourselves under the protection and the perfectly formed the, the, the yoke that Jesus crafts for us. And he says, see, you don't even feel it there, do you? Sundays are this gift of peace from Christ. When I give my Sundays to God first, it allows me to finally resist the temptation to always go and do. So I'm afraid this one hits so close to home, it might seem a little bit hypocritical and maybe I'm the wrong person to actually be preaching to anyone about going and doing all the time. Um, but maybe I think because I know so much about wrapping my identity and my worth and my sense of accomplishment, I know so much about attaching that to going and doing that I might be actually the perfect person to have the right perspective on the pitfalls and the dangers of going and doing and placing our worth and our value and our sense of accomplishment and meaning on the going and the doing. You see, when we aren't going and doing, we don't feel like we're producing or accomplishing. And if you don't feel like you're producing and accomplishing, then you don't feel like you have anything to measure how well you did or how poorly you did or how good you are, or how bad you are. You don't have a trophy to point at, an accomplished task. Uh, uh, what if you got to the end of the week and you couldn't say, oh my God, I'm exhausted. I mean, I, oh, what a week at work and my gosh, the schedule. And what would happen if we couldn't brag on how all we do is go and do? What would we have in our trophy case? What would we have to show people how much we're uh, 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 doing and carrying the load and, 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 and there's really nobody out there working harder than us? I hear it all the time from people who tell me why they couldn't be here. Oh, pastor. Oh, my gosh. I, we want to get back. We are so busy right now. And it, it breaks my heart because... We all fall for it at some point that there's worth and value in the busyness. We kind of feel like if we're not doing it, then who will unravel the mess of our life? Who will solve the complex problems? Who will fix our things that are broken and need fixing? Who will answer our prayers if not for us ourselves? Who will provide for our needs? Who will do the thing that needs getting done? 
if not us. It's as if we, somebody's at your door, we, uh, we do all of that because there's an inherent mistrust in us that we don't believe God's going and doing on our behalf. That he's busy with other things. Lord, I'm not going to bother you with my stuff. Go take care of world hunger and suffering across the planet. I'll be Lord of my life so you don't have to trouble yourself with being Lord over my life. You see, every time you go and do, you take lordship over your marriage, your finances, your provision, your emotional, physical, spiritual health, your kids. Oh man, we love, we love to try and stay in the driver's seat with our kids. It's so hard. It's so much harder to parent adult kids because they keep grabbing the steering wheel. And we have to remind them, no, for the rest of your lives, we steer the car. Because we know better. And the truth is that we often feel more comfortable being Lord over our lives than allowing him to be Lord over. Because we don't like knowing, or we don't like not knowing what he knows. We just think, Lord, I would trust you if you just tell me more. I would trust you if you just let me know it's all going to work out. I would just trust you more if you just showed me the future and showed me you took care of it. But since you won't, I've got it. And I, I'm telling you, I sit here chief of sinners among you. When I first took on lead pastor of the church um, 15 years ago, or it's coming on 15 years. My first year was miserable. Actually, my first two years were miserable. Second year, a little less miserable than fir first year, though, I was, uh, I, I don't think my shoulders ever like relaxed down into their natural position. I was just so tense. I was just, I couldn't do enough to keep up with all of the chaos and all of the mess that I had to clean up and all of the, I mean, we were in financial difficulty and, and there was staff transitions and there was just people, you know, it's not you, pastor. I mean, it, it, it's kind of you because you're here now. You used to not be here. And now that you're here, we're going to move on. But it's not you. Oh, and you hear that 14 times and you're like, I think it might be me because there's an awful lot of not me for the reason people are leaving. And I remember Joy Laws, who's just this voice of peace and, and it, wisdom. And she asked me, why do you keep doing all that you're doing? And I, I kind of felt this like embarrassment and um, defensiveness at the same time. Like I knew she was right, but I felt like I had been caught doing what I already knew was wrong. And I said, because Joy, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And um, in her sweetness, uh, she didn't laugh directly at me. 
Uh, she smirked a little though and said, I think you just have to do what only you can do and let God do the rest. You, you don't have to do it all because if you try to, then what's left for him to do? And, and honestly, how well is it working so far for you? And that was liberating. I, I, I won't say that I gave it up. I won't say that I walked away from trying to control everything and, 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 and trying to be Lord over the decisions and over the finances and over staff and over my family and over, I didn't stop. But I had that now in my mental arsenal that was pushing back every time I did try to, and I began getting better at this mantra of, man, God, you have a real problem on your hands. I, I clearly can't fix this, so you've got a real problem on your hands. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. And the better I got at saying it, the better I got at doing it. More importantly, the better I got at not doing it. I just didn't have to go and do all the time. I had to do a hard reset at last year's sabbatical when I took, Lisa and I took three months because I had gotten back, the pandemic sort of um, tapped into old bad habits for me. And I came back out of it though. This is the good thing. I came back out of it. Um, number one, uh, medicated for ADHD and that was been a huge help. And then, um, and Lisa said, amen. Um, and then number two, just determined that I'm not God. And I'm not God of my family and I'm not God of the church and I'm not God of the future. And, and I have to be able to walk in the rhythm of God's grace for my life. The one he perfectly formed for me that wasn't meant to be as hard as I make it all the time. And so I'm gonna leave you with this last passage from Jesus. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, he says this. So don't worry about these things saying, don't worry about all of the things that we worry about. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These are the things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. How awesome that we sang that song today. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, live in right relationship with me. Because we know that we are incapable of righteous living, right, apart from Christ. So when you go under the yoke of Christ, you go under the righteousness of Christ. So I just took another burden off your shoulders. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteousness and he will give you everything you need. Listen, fall in the rhythm of the grace of God's mercy on your life, of God's forgiveness on your life, of God's provision over your life, of God's future for your life. Walk in the rhythm of knowing that it's all been taken care of already. And do what you can do. I'm not telling you don't show up at work tomorrow. Lord's got it. I ain't going back to work. He told me they're going to keep a paying me and I can just uh, go golfing. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's just that you're not your provision. And if your job got taken away from you tomorrow, how would that rock your world? Or would you be able to say, 
Whew, Lord, you got a big problem on your hands. But I'm not going to come out from underneath the yoke. Because if I pick up that yoke over there with my provision, with the provision for my family, with my needs, with my unknown future, if I pick that up, uh, I can't even fathom the exhaustion of the bitterness, of the anger, of the frustration that I'll carry with me because I have to carry the weight of that. So I'm going to stay firmly planted underneath this yoke in which you have all the weight and I get to just walk in the grace and the mercy and the provision and the kindness and the gentleness and the, the wonders of your blessings, God, I get to walk in that. If you will, just bow your heads for a moment. Because I want you to have the chance to do something with this. First of all, if you're not a follower of Christ, I have amazing news for you. You don't have to be perfect, good, cleaned up, fixed. All of the things that we think it takes to come to him, you're incapable of getting right enough to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are all sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It says that the wages of our sin, our rebellion against God's plan for us, our rebellion against God's way for us, is ultimately death. Death in the highest potential of our life and the best living that we can do. And ultimately, if we continued that out, that we would not live under the blessing of eternity with him. But the amazing thing is, it says that grace is a gift that can't be earned and that when you come into relationship with him, it won't be because of anything you've done except receive the gift that he's offering you, relationship with him. And if that's you, and you want to say yes to him, I promise I'm not going to have you stand up or do anything weird or uncover you and embarrass you. It's not about that. It's just about you starting down the path of relationship with him. And if that's you and you want to, everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just stick your hand up and say, yeah, that's me. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to pray all of us together in just a second as if everybody just raised their hand. And then as soon as service is over, I want you to go out to the connection kiosk. We used to call it the bookstore, right outside the door on the left. And they have a packet under, I raise my hand, and it's a Bible, and it's three small books, really, really small booklets, actually, that are gonna get you started in your walk with Jesus Christ. One's called A Good Start. That's where I want you to start. And that's, you're going to get started in that new, and then I want you to commit yourself to being in this place Sunday after Sunday so that you continue to be encouraged. The Bible says faith grows by hearing, by hearing the word of God. So your faith gets increased when you hear God's teaching. I want everyone to pray this with me. Christ Jesus, I believe in you and I want a relationship with you. And I know I'm not worthy. And I know I don't deserve it. So I thank you for covering my sin 
for erasing my rebellion and making me a new creation today. I begin my relationship with you if you'll take me as I am. Help me discover who you've created me to be. From this day forward, you have my heart, my mind, my body, all that I have. In your name I pray. And with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, if you'll say that this message reached you today because maybe you've been struggling with taking a rest and reflecting on what you've created during the week. Maybe you don't want to reflect on what you've created during the week because you know the world you created is not a world you'd be proud of. But you're committed now to sitting with God, giving it first to him so that you can sit with him and reflect and say, God, if that's not the world I was meant to create, and I know it's not, that's not my highest and best. I know it's not your highest and best. So help me be a better world creator. Not only for me, God, but for those who encounter me, who encounter my world, who come into proximity to me, my children, my family, my coworkers, complete strangers. The world I create, I carry with me everywhere I go and I wanna be a better world creator. And maybe you'll say, I, I've been so exhausted and I've been so uh, overburdened and I've been so frustrated and I get bitter and I even get angry at God because I feel like he should be carrying more. But now I realize I'm pulling this everything around with me. I'm pulling guilt and shame and, and work and all of it. I'm pulling responsibility and provision and I'm pulling an unknown future and I'm dragging it and I'm not living under that light, easy yoke of the rhythms of Christ's grace. If that's you, if this is spoken to you and you just say, today things begin to change. God gets the best of me. God gets the first of me. And that's your commitment today. We just throw a hand up as well. Yeah, we're making that decision together. Father, I thank you for every hand raised and for every person maybe who doesn't even know where they stand with all of this. That you would breathe peace over us and you would uh, wrap your arms around us in a way that doesn't feel smothering, but it feels liberating. It feels like we're held close to safety and to provision and blessing. And it feels like we're being brought back in to the, the home we walked away from, the, the, the warmth of the fire when we chose to go out into the cold. And God, we come back in and we lay ourselves at your feet and we can rest and know that you are going and doing on our behalf. You have it all under control. So we give you this day. We mark this day to honor you above all things, above our family, above ourselves, above anything else we do. We'll give it to you and you first. You have our Sundays. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.